Managers lead everybody the same, but leaders lead everybody differently. That's John Maxwell, critically acclaimed keynote speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and world-renowned leadership expert. If you ask enough questions as a leader, the people on your team will give you the answers you need to know. The problem with leaders is so many of us, Michael, we lead by assumption. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with John Maxwell to discuss why he believes leadership is a verb, not a noun, why setting expectations with your team creates anticipation, and why leaders are best served by checking their egos and embracing humility. What I have found is that if I'm a controlling leader and I have to know everything and I have to make all the decisions, I become a a major limitation to the growth of my organization. My organization can only grow to the level of my own skills and my own time and my own influence. And so the only way that you can grow a company is to grow leaders. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. John Maxwell is a world-renowned author who has sold more than 25 million books in 50 languages. John has been identified as the number one authority on leadership by the American Management Association and the world's most influential leadership expert by Business Insider and Inc. Magazine. We began our conversation by discussing the genesis of John's leadership journey. When I was in my 20s, I heard Zig Ziglar talk about adding value to people and basically said, if you'll help people get what they want, you'll get everything that you want and need in life. And and to be honest with you, Michael, up until that point, I had it kind of backwards. I was a, a young leader and I had a lot of vision. And so I was trying to get everybody to help me and get on my leadership train. And that day, it just was a paradigm shift for me. And all of a sudden I thought, I think I'm doing it wrong. I think I need to put people first and and find out what their needs are and serve them. And then the return will come back to me. And so it was during this period of time, I I asked myself, because I wanted to write and I wanted to speak, I asked myself, what can I write about that people really either, they either want to read or they need to read. And I came to the conclusion that if I could write in four areas that I probably could help a lot of people. And the four areas are relationships, just the ability to get along with people, attitude, the ability to overcome adversity and and not allow it to stop you, leadership, the ability to influence people, and, and then equipping how to develop teams and training and equip people because that's the only way you can multiply influence or money or anything is by working with and through people. And so I literally started writing books and speaking in those four areas. And I just found that it was, it was right where people were. And so I tell people all the time that when you have a dream, you've got to ask yourself, I mean, the dream kind of always starts, the vision always starts with me and what I'd like to do, but I've really got to go beyond that and kind of mature myself and ask myself, is what I want to do is, is that what people need? And is that what people want? And I've seen a lot of people who not do really well because they had a dream, but it was serving themselves and it really wasn't putting the people first. And, and so I just went down that stream and, of writing and speaking and took those four subjects. And you know now it's 35 million books later, I've found that these are four things that really help people. And that's why I love, that's why I love being here today with you. I love to help people where they are and add value to them. So that's how it got started. And it's bigger than I would have ever thought. Honestly, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I, I thought I would do well, but I wouldn't, didn't think I would do this well. So I'm pleased. So I know you're, you're quite the student of personal growth and development, and, and I've read that your mission is to help others realize their significance and potential. And, and, and this, is, this mission is so important to you that you essentially dedicated your whole life to it. But I'd love to learn just, just why that specific mission, why it's important to you. Well, first of all, I think it's a calling for me, not a career. You know, I was with Steve Harvey the other day. We were doing a a digital product on how to communicate, effective communication. So we're in the, he's a friend and we were in the studio all day and we were basically talking about what are the keys of, of great communication. And during the afternoon filming, Steve looked at me and said, you know, John, he said, a, a career is what you get paid for. 
He said, but a calling is what you were made for. And as soon as he said that, I thought, you know, what I do is a calling. I was I was made for this. And, and the reason that I love what I do so much is because it really helps people. It really adds value to them. It's not complicated. I would only teach what a person could really uh, not only learn, but could apply to their life. I wouldn't want to frustrate anybody. So I've made it a real discipline in my life to take the principles that I know and that I've practiced and I teach and simplify them so that people can understand them, but even more importantly than understand them, that they can go do something about it. So now I'm 74 and uh, I'm just loving what I do. And so people are asking me all the time, you know, John, when are you going to retire? And I said, well, I'm not. And, and they, they can't figure that out. <laughs> well, why aren't you going to retire? And, and it's because I love what I do. But I had a person the other day, Michael, say to me that when you're retired, you, you get to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And as soon as they said that to me, I said, well, then I'm retired. I'm retired right now. I'm, I'm doing right now with you and all of our attorney uh, friends. Right now, I'm doing what I want to do with people I want to do it with. And so I don't even feel like I worked. I'll be honest with you. I, I just, as somebody said, are you a workaholic? I said, no, I'm a workaholic. I just love what I do. So I don't, I don't think there's much holic to it. It's just a lot of frolic. And, and, but I help people. And that's what keeps me in the game, helping people. I know we're going to talk a lot about leadership today. I know you hinted at this earlier, but how do you define leadership? Well, I define leadership as influence, nothing more, nothing less. Too many people think leadership is a noun, and it's not, it's a verb. Too many people think leadership is a title or a position or you know where you have your office, and it's really none of those. So I think leadership is influence. And the way to gain influence with people is to intentionally add value to them. And I think that anyone can learn how to lead. I don't, think, I don't think everybody has the same leadership capacity, but I think everybody can learn how to influence people and how to add value to people that gives them more influence. And so I teach leadership basically as, as, as something that helps you to influence other people and add value to them on a daily basis. And when we talk about leaders, I mean, what are some of the key differences that you've seen between effective and ineffective leaders? There are a lot of differences. In fact, I have an expression, everything rises and falls on leadership. That's the question you just asked me right there, Michael. You know, what's the difference between those who make leadership rise for people and then those who, you know, it kind of crashes with people. And, and there are several things and we don't have time for all of them, but I, I would start with the main thing. And I, I think the main thing is the motive of a leader. I think there's a very thin line between motivation and manipulation of people. And motivation is always right, and manipulation is never right. When I motivate people, leaders motivate people, they move people. Motivation is, is moving people for mutual advantage, where manipulation is moving people for my personal advantage. And I think, that, I think the challenge, Michael, with leaders is that I think we usually start off kind of pure, but as we're successful, we build our business and, and uh, increase our clients and make a lot more money, I think all of a sudden we began to take leadership and almost began to turn it to, it's about me and it's about you helping me and you serving me and, and you making me better. And I, and I think the moment that, it, that leadership begins to be for me instead of for you, that's when I start manipulating you. That's moving people for personal advantage. And of course, that's always wrong. So I think there are a lot of differences between good leaders and not good leaders. But I think the big difference is why do you, you know, want to lead? So when, when I have people say, because they know I do leadership, they say, I want to be a leader. I always say, well, I'm glad to hear that. But then I say, why? Why do you want to be a leader? And if it's for the reward of, of leadership or the purpose of leadership, there's going to be problems. If it's for the responsibility of really helping and making a difference, then you're going to probably be good. But that's, that's a big difference, just the motive of why do I lead? That's for sure. And let me ask you, just when it comes to leadership, where do you feel most CEOs and leaders go wrong? Like, what, what are some of like the biggest leadership mistakes? Well, I think because I deal in the corporate world, ego, I think that when a CEO takes over an organization, instead of building on what worked in the previous organization, they want to put their own stamp on it. They want to basically say, well, now it's mine. And, and I've watched a lot of wonderful companies that had really terrific CEOs who left the scene 
And a new person, instead of coming in and integrating what was already working, they had to kind of establish, this is my program, and this is what I'm bringing, and this is going to be different, and the last wasn't that good. And I, and I think that's a big mistake. I do a lot of work in Latin America, and one of the challenges of government in Latin America is they change government all the time. So just about the time, if you were good, you were starting to make headway, you're out and somebody else is in. And I think leadership best is leadership that is, um, think of it as a relay race where the baton is handed off, where the person who gets the baton really can run that race really well. And I think leadership is all about legacy. It's all about succession. And I just think that um, when, when the ego gets involved, all of a sudden, all the good possibilities for the organization are almost always lost. And it's almost, not always, but almost always, it's, it's, it's an ego issue. And what do you find I mean, are some of the critical differences or even distinctions between the way most entrepreneurs and leaders spend their time and then those the like of Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson, Elon Musk, just anyone who's at the top of their game? Here's how I explain it. To do well in business, you need to be in the top 20%. Jack Welch was a good friend of mine who was CEO for General Electric for several years. His, his phrase was, you, you need to learn how to get out of the people pile because there's a whole pile of people in an organization. How do you distinguish yourself and, and separate yourself from the rest of them? And so I tell business people all the time, as I would share with our attorney friends today, if you really want to be successful, you've, you, you really need to be in the top 20%. And life gets pretty good at that. But the difference between the top 20% and the top 2%, and when you start talking about the Jeff Bezos and those, that, that caliber of leader, is that when you get into the top 2%, three things, three things happen to get you there. And let's not mistake one of them. It's very obvious, but isn't talked a lot about. And that's just good talent, gifted, talented people. I mean, if, I have a, if I'm a coach of a track team and we're getting ready for the high jump event, I don't need seven people on my track team that can jump one foot. I, I need one person that can jump seven feet. It's, and seven foot jump is a, is a talent deal. You, you've got, so I think sometimes we really just kind of don't really face the fact that to get that top 2%, I think you have to have some talent and giftedness. And so that's one. I think secondly is a real sense of humility. Humility makes us teachable. And life is all about learning new things leaving things to go to things and growing. And I think that humility makes me teachable, which means I'm uh, ready to always learn new things, ask questions, not feel that I always have the, not only the answer, that sometimes I, I have the wrong answer. And I, I think that Jim Collins, and it's good, great, just really talked about the fact that, that great leaders have a humility that keeps them humble and teachable but they also have a tenacity that allows them to um, work hard and take great pride in, in what they're accomplishing. And then those, those two almost seem like they're opposite, but I don't think they're opposite at all. I think humility is essential in, in, in a good leader's life because life keeps changing and only those who keep learning are going to be able to stay with it. Right now, Harvard Business Review said last year that the average shelf life of a bachelor's degree when you graduate from college is only five years. So five years out of college, honestly, anything you probably learned there, you're never going to apply in your, in your business. Well, then how do I keep growing and sustain my business? Well, have a, a teachable spirit, which brings me to the third part. You know, you got to have some talent. You have to have a humility that's teachable. And then thirdly, it's without any question, you have to intentionally grow and develop yourself. I had a mentor when I was in my 20s who asked me if I had a personal growth plan, and I did not. And, and he made a statement that just changed my life. He said, John, growth's not automatic. You, you don't automatically get better. If you're going to get better, you're going to have to be intentional. You're going to have to develop a growth plan. And I never had a growth plan. I never, I never even entered my mind to have a growth plan. But then I said, okay, I'm going to develop one for myself. And, and almost, not quite, but almost 50 years ago, I started that. And, and today, I'm expanding, growing. My capacity to grow is bigger than it's ever been before. And honestly, it's because I, I keep growing. So I, I develop my own growth capacity. It's just like a person goes to the gym and they, they increase their physical capacity. Well, when you're intentional in your growth, my growth capacity is off the charts. And I can, I can consume a lot and learn a lot. But it's because I've increased it because I've been intentional. So 
you know, intentional personal growth, a, a humility that makes us teachable and a and talent. I think I think that's what gets us in the top two percent. And John, when you say talent, what do you mean by that? Is it like a specific characteristic? Is it intelligence? Is it the ability to go, you know, long hours without eating or sleeping? Like, how would you define that? <laughs> well, I wrote a book, uh, what would it be, three years ago now, Michael, called No Limits. It's a book on how to reach potential, how to reach your capacity. I mean, think about it. Every time you hire a new person, one of the questions you ask is, what's their potential? You know, I see them where they are, but three years, five years from now, where are they going to be? And so I wrote this book because I, I had never read a book on potential. I, I mean, we talk about reaching our potential, helping our people reach their potential, but I never read a potential book. And so when I wrote No Limits, I came up with three things that I think is very, very helpful. And, and that is the first section of the book talks about awareness. And really what I talk about in the first part is the fact that you can't fix yourself or improve yourself if you're unaware of what the issue is. You can't fix what you don't see or know. And, and we all have blind spots and we all have areas that, that we're not aware of. So when somebody tells me that they're, when they come up and say, I'm quite self-aware, I always smile and I think to myself, no, you're not. I don't think any of us are self-aware. I think the only awareness I have of my blind spots in my own self is the fact that other people who love me come into my life and tell me I have these blind spots and, and help bring awareness to me. But that's one part, I think, of, of reaching potential is, is awareness. And then I think the second part is talent. When you were asking me, how do I know what talent is? I mean, we could be talking about ability, natural gifts. When I'm talking about, we're talking about your strengths. And, and here's what I know. If I'm working in an area where I'm gifted, talented, where I have what I would call natural strengths, here, here's one of the things that sets me apart. One is I'll be better than most people at it, just because I'm, I'm better. But the other thing is that, honestly, it comes quite easy to me. It's like natural. And, and so if I talk to somebody about leading, it's very natural for me to to intuitively know how to lead. I intuitively know how to lead because I'm gifted. In my book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, I found that the law of intuition is the hardest of the laws to teach because how do you teach intuition? And what I discovered is this, we are intuitive in the area of our giftedness. So because I'm gifted in leadership, going back, what's talent? What's the skill level? What's this? Because I'm talented in leadership, I'm intuitive in leadership. And so, you know, when I say leaders see more than others see and they see before others see, that before is, is pure intuition. And if I'm gifted an area, I'm going to just see things quicker than others. So here, let's put it this way. If you're in a group of six people and you're discussing something and, and you're the last to catch on, then <laughs> let me tell you, that's not your gifted area. I can, I can almost promise you. So I talk about in, in the No Limits book, awareness so that we can fix what needs to be fixed giftedness, ability, because that's our strengths and that, that's what really carries the freight for us. And then choices, the third part of, of reaching potentials. It's just making the right choices. I mean, how many times do I see people that are highly gifted and um, could really do exceptional, but they just make wrong choices and they kind of sabotage themselves and kick themselves out of the game and, and are on the side of the road. So those are kind of three things that help us reach our potential. But when I talk about natural giftedness and abilities, I'm talking about the things that we naturally do well. Now, we need to encourage ourselves to strengthen ourselves in those areas because to get in the top 2%, you've really got to really maximize your, your strength zone. Yeah. I was going to say, before we even delve into speaking about leading others, you know, there's, there's always talking about the area that's even more challenging, right? And that's, that's leading ourselves. You know, I almost wonder, like, where, where, do you, where do you begin with that? Well, I begin with it by the fact that I know I need to lead myself. <laughs> when people ask me what my greatest leadership challenge is, I always tell them, Michael, my greatest leadership challenge is leading others. Or I mean, it's leading myself, not leading others. It's easier for me to tell you what to do than for me to do it myself. And so people follow example. People do what people see. So if I can lead myself well, to be honest with you, I, I have a chance of doing really well with the organization. But if I can't lead myself well, how can I lead you well? obviously. We often hear from leaders that will say like they know what they need to do, but yet they just don't do it. And they'll say, I wish I had greater self-discipline. Like how, how does one even develop greater self-discipline? 
I'm asked that question a lot. And I think the reason I'm asked the question a lot is because I'm, well, I'm still in the game and I'm 74. And people know that I get up every morning about 5, 5.30 at the latest and uh, put my bathrobe on, go to my home office and get out my legal pad. I literally write with a four-color pen still and I start writing. And, and so people say, well, my, and, and I write maybe till 11, 11.30 in, in late morning. And people say, well, you're, you must be incredibly disciplined to get up every morning at 5 or 5.30. And, and I say, well, not really. I, I don't think so. I think the word I would use instead of discipline is, is anticipation. The reason I am so excited about working is because I anticipate I'm going to help people. And I think that when it starts to get, become business as usual, when we begin to have an attitude, been there, done that, when we begin to lose the joy of the journey, our whole leadership begins to dull and we, we lose our effectiveness and, and we don't want that to happen. So I think anticipation is just, a, for me, that's where the energy comes from. That's where the second mile excellence comes from that, that you do. It all comes from the fact that I think I'm going to really help people. And if a person feels that, they really help people. And if they, they don't feel that, I think that they that they fail. I was playing golf with a pro golfer recently, and um, I had a, a couple of amateurs like me with them. And I, I knew this golfer really well. And I told him when we got ready to play golf, I said, I'm so glad that we have you because you're so helpful with, the, with you, you know, the last time I played golf with you, you were helpful with the, with the players and you, you helped them read greens and you gave them golf tips. And they just came away with a rich experience. And, and I said, I'm just very excited that you're, you're going to be with us today. And I kid you not for those 18 holes. I mean, he was so helpful. But I created an environment of anticipation for him of what could be. And he saw himself in that picture and it became a reality. So, so speaking of anticipation, how do you do that for yourself, right? Because I imagine that, you know, a certain point for many business owners, that anticipation has become dread, Right. They would love to be excited. They would love to anticipate. But maybe they, you know, they come into the office and they don't know if their team's going to be accountable. They know they're going to be putting out fires. They, they're just dealing with a slew of issues and they want to be excited. And yet they don't see the matrix quite yet. Well, I think it happens often. And I'm so glad you asked the question. But let me just say this. I've never seen anybody who succeeded by coming in the office and thinking negatively. And I've never known anybody to succeed saying, oh, I'm going to hate being with my team today. And oh my gosh, and I've got three meetings I don't want to be in. There's no energy there. There's no energy. Allowed. In fact, sometimes when I have a meeting with half a dozen people, one of the things I'll ask them is I'll, before we start the meeting, I'll say, what's your, what's your energy level today? And you know, from a one to a 10, talk to me. And, and you know, they may say, well, it's a six or a five. Well, that's good. That's, that's average. But then I say, but for today, we, you know, we got some real, we got some real issues to talk about. Honestly, I'm going to need you to be about a seven. You're going to have to be a seven for me today. If, if you're below a seven, probably, you, why don't you just leave the meeting? It's okay. We, you're not going to help us. We, I got to have sevens, eights, and nines today in the meeting. And what am I doing? I'm setting the table as a leader, and I'm setting the environment as a leader for them to know how to respond to me. So when we come to the office. And we're not anticipating something good. The first thing I would do is I'd say, don't go in the office. Let me talk to you. Why is it so bad? Why don't you anticipate? Why is it that you feel that today's going to be a, a boring drudgery day? I mean, let's talk about it. And almost always, it's the person. You know, you almost if you, if you fix the leader, you, you fix the organization. And if you don't fix the leader, you don't fix the organization. Everything, again, rises and falls on leadership. So there is no energy in going into the office and feeling like it's, you know, it's going, oh, here we go again. One more time. Been there. Hey, or, or boredom. I mean, who, I mean, who wants to follow a boring leader? Been there, done that. Okay. People migrate to people who love them and, and who love what they do. And, and when you love your people and you love what you do, now all of a sudden, you create a, a bar. I mean, again, are there sevens in the room today or is your energy level three or four? You want to keep that energy level high and you keep that energy level high by, by going in yourself and, and having high expectations for what you're going to accomplish. So you suggest calling it out, right? So that you wouldn't suggest going in and you being positive, but also calling it out in others if you feel the, the energy is not quite right. 
No, I think you want to call out everybody, including yourself. And that's why I like before you ever get into discussion, just ask everybody what their energy level is. You know, and, and, and if somebody says, well, you know, I, I'm a five, you, you know, you might say, OK, well, we need a seven, really. But, you know, stay in the room. It's OK. Stay in the room. If sometime during the meeting you get that energy up a couple notches, you know, get in the game with us. Get in the game. Because sometimes they'll get in there and all of a sudden they'll see the possibilities and, and maybe the energy level can come up. But I think you do it on the front end. And the reason I think you do it on the front end is I think that most people's energy level is based on where they are, not where they need to be. And I think what a leader does is a leader creates a platform and a mindset and an environment not from where they are, but where they need to be. So if I say I need a seven out of 10 for energy for this meeting today, the first thing I do is I create an entire environment of saying, this is going to be a little bit harder work than what we normally do. We're going to have to participate a little bit more than what we normally do. And I think that set it, here's, here's the point. This is a good leadership point. Setting expectations create anticipation. And so when I go in and I set the expectations the way that I wanted to do, now I'm basically giving people the privilege to anticipate on a level that they're going to be able to pull it off. And when it comes to leading others, I mean, what, what have been some of the most effective ways you found to drive positive behavioral change, whether it's fostering greater accountability or even developing leadership in others? It starts with me, first of all. People do what people see. In the 21 Laws of Leadership, the Law of Magnetism, we attract who we are not who we want. And so it begins with me. But it also, I think, begins with a real sense of reality. Max Dupree said, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And I think that's very, very true. And, and so, for example, the reality that I like to set with people is the fact that life is difficult. Business is difficult. What I do is I, I, I'll put my arm up like this, and basically I, I share with people everything worthwhile is uphill. Everything. Everything worthwhile. I mean, if you've got a great relationship with somebody, it was uphill. You had to work at it. I mean, if you're building a business, I mean, look what you're doing at Crisp right now. You're just building a, a new facility, and I, it's all uphill. There, did you come in one day when you're planning and dreaming and paying and doing all that stuff and saying, man, it's just easier than I ever thought it was going to be? And Gosh, it, we, you know, we thought it would be three months. It's only going to be a month. It's so much quicker. And wow, you know, I don't even think I'm going to have to work next week. I think it's just going to happen over there. That's ridiculous. That's everything worthwhile is uphill. And, and I think with people, what we do is we talk about upfront expectations. And upfront expectations means when we hire people, Michael, I mean, they're all excited. They're getting hired. I mean, it's like a banner day. We're going to go home and celebrate. I just got a job and I, I'm excited about where I'm going to work and who I'm going to work with and what we're going to go do. Now, so there's an excitement level there. And it's right then that we need to tell our people we need to have what I call upfront expectations. And upfront expectations, basically, Michael, if you were coming on the team and you were excited because you just got hired and you're ready to start maybe next Monday in your new job and it's going to be wonderful. I look at you right now, not not a month or two out, I look at you right now and say, now let's have some upfront expectations. And one of the upfront expectations we're going to have, Michael, is we're going to have some tough conversations. I want you to know that right now. There are going to be some days in the next month that we're, you're going to come over and we're going to sit down and it's not going to be easy conversation because you're going to be maybe not hitting your goals. You're maybe not, the behavior's not what it, I said, we're going to have tough conversations. But see, I do that in the front end. I, so maybe three months from now, we're having tough conversations. First thing I say to you is, Michael, remember when we hired you? Remember I told you we'd have tough conversations? Well, we're about to have one right now. Well, I think that there's something about creating an environment of understanding on the front end that this is not an easy job. If jobs were easy, everybody would have them. There's a reason why people don't work. There's a reason why people don't get into the firm. I mean, and so I think it's really helping people understand that life is difficult. It's uphill. Now, here's what's beautiful. The moment I embrace the fact that business is difficult, that hiring is, is challenging, that firing is, is not fun, the moment I begin to embrace that, guess what? Life doesn't become as difficult anymore. See, disappointment is the gap between expectation and reality. And what I, what I try to help people understand is, as leaders, work hard on closing that gap. So be the model and then set people up to realize that this is not going to be easy. Let's, 
reality says it's going to take us longer than we think. It's going to cost us more than we think. And I think those are the things that leaders do on the front end. I, the mistake I made as a young leader, I made this, this is a big mistake I made, is, is I didn't have those upfront expectations. And, and so I'd hire them. And then I would know we're going to have a bump in the road down the road, but I'd say, well, I'll wait, to, I'll wait till we get to that bump. But by that time, I hope that I'm so relationally connected with them that they like me. And I could almost like relationally bring them through that difficult time. And I found it's just not true. It's not true. So the harder work you do on the front end, the better it goes on the back end. The easier it is and the less work you do on the front end, the harder it is. And, and so the question, you're, it's always pay now, play later. And everybody has to pay. The question is not, will I pay? The question is, when will I pay? And I think doing it on the front end really sets you up for some good long wins. And I'd love to know your thoughts on just how leaders can just approach leading and engaging younger team members. You know, or, or if I put it another way, millennials. <laughs> I'm glad you just said the millennial because that's the number one question I'm asked, Michael, is wherever I go with companies, they'll say, well, okay, how do I engage millennials? And, and, and so let me talk about that for a moment because there's a high frustration. And, and the frustration is in the fact that most of the people asking the question of how they engage uh, millennials are, are older people. And so our values are different, including work ethic and priorities and what we think is important. So when they ask me that question, I throw them a little bit of a curve, I think, but I help them. And here's how I help them. I, I share with them that the only way that they'll ever get the best out of millennials is to value millennials right where they are. In other words, it's not like I'm going to change you and I'm going to value you. I'm going to value you where you are. And their work ethic is different and, and so their priorities are different, but they have a lot to offer. And so what I teach about leadership is you have to find people before you can lead people. Too often, we don't want to find them. We want to lead them. And when, here's one of the characteristics that I value you. If I value you, I'll take time to find you. I won't say, oh, well, look, you're part of the company now. Get, you know, go to your desk. Let's get going. No, no. If I truly value you, I'll find you. Now, now when I find you, then I can lead you and I can lead you very well. And so I tell them, you got to go find the millennials. In other words, if I have a group of millennials, which we do in our companies, we have seven of them, but I, you know, sit around the table with them and say, okay, you know, we're going to, we're, we're family. We're going to work together. We want to make a difference together. So tell me, what are your values? Give me your number one value. And you go around the room and you find out what those are. And, and then you basically say to them, now what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to, I'm going to try to lead you, not based on where I am, but I'm going to lead you based on that value you have. I mean, for example, millennials, one of the things I love, love, love about millennials is they want purpose in life. They just don't want to work to work. They, they want to have a, a meaningful, purposeful life. Well, once I find that as a value in a, in a millennial, then I say, okay, let's talk about your job. What is it that when you do it, you find purpose and meaning in that job? And, and what you do is you ask questions. If you ask enough questions as a leader, the people on your team will give you the answers you need to know. And the moment that they, the problem with leaders is so many of us, Michael, we lead by assumption. And we, we assume that they're this way and we assume that they know this. And, and it's a big mess. You know, assumption is the mother of all leadership mess ups. I mean, it's a, it's a mess up. If, if I don't know you and I assume I'm going to miss you all the time because you see managers lead everybody the same, but leaders lead everybody differently. And you don't get the best out of people by leading everybody the same. And I wrote a book um, a couple of years ago, and it's called The Leader's Greatest Return. It's about developing other leaders is what it's all about. And in the process of The Leader's Greatest Return and developing other leaders, I have a whole chapter on how do you find people. And you find people by asking what motivates them. You know, if, if I know what motivates you, if I know what your values are, if I, I know what you consider to be your purpose, if I know what you really think is important in priorities, if I start knowing those things, I can do a good job leading you because I'll lead you. You see, managers lead everybody the same, but leaders lead everybody differently. And so to lead well, to help people get to the next level, you really have to... Um, know them and, and find them and ask questions. And it's in that asking questions that you honestly 
give me an hour with you and, and asking questions to you and you will you'll be basically telling me how to lead you. You'll, you'll be giving me my, my little blueprint on how I'm going to lead Michael and the company because I'm going to ask you enough questions. I'm going to lead according to where you are, not where I am. I'm going to lead according to what you want, not what I want. I'm going to lead according to what you see, not what I see. I think that's a huge miss many, many times in leadership. And, and speaking of, of finding people, I mean, it's when it comes to, I want to talk about hiring, right? Because what are some of the ways law firm owners or business leaders can attract the best talent to their organizations? It, it, this is the one that you always hear about. It's so difficult, you know, to find good people. And I don't mean just best talent. You know, it's also ensuring culture fit. Well, okay. First of all, when you ask the hiring question, in fact, I have Mark Cole, who's the CEO of our John Maxwell Enterprise. He just walked a little bit ago in the studio. When he walked in the studio and you asked me a hiring question, first of all, I have to let you know I don't hire, okay? I haven't hired for many, many years. And Mark does hire, and I may ask Mark in a moment to come over and give us one or two quick thoughts about hiring, because he has to he has to live in that world. I don't have to live in that world. But I also want to give you another disclaimer upon, I not only don't hire, when I did hire, I wasn't any good, okay? <laughs> So this is going back to being aware of what you do well and aware of what you don't do well. I've never considered myself a good hire, and, and I know why. I have a real blind spot, and my blind spot is I think the best in people. And if you think the best in people, you should never hire. I mean, you have no business hiring. You've got to be some cynical son of a gun to hire. You know what I mean? You, you got to want to lift up every rock and see what's under that sucker, and you want to ask a lot more questions than I. And so I naively thought, naively thought that, okay, you, your job didn't work out really well for you in your last place, but now you're going to be on my team and, and it's going to all be well and I'm going to make you better. And oh, how stupid can you really get? So when it comes to hiring, I don't ever feel I did it well. I don't do it at all. And I'm going to ask if Mark would just come over and, and I'm not going to get out of my seat. I'm just going to, this is Mark Cole. And he was just in the studio and he, he runs the entire John Maxwell Enterprise. Could you help him a little bit on, on hiring for yeah, me? Yeah, so do I have like three hours? Yeah, yeah, you have. How about how about three minutes? Three minutes. I how can about do it. My, three minutes? We'll give him three, won't we, Michael? I can do it in three. Okay. I can do it in three minutes. So okay. the first thing we do is we get really clear on what's important to us. And for us, character, culture and competence is super important. So competence is the responsibility of the hiring manager. They have to ask the question, does this person have what it takes or have the characteristics that we can develop to get us what we need from this position? And that's the competence questions answered by the supervising person, team member. The second question is character, and that's not values and morals. We assume that if you know who we are, you wanna work with us and we kind of got that, but it's do we have the ability to work together well? That question is answered by the people that's going to be working most closely with them throughout the day. And then the final question is one that for many years I answered alone. We're too big now, so I've trained our leaders to ask the question of culture. For us, culture consists of three things. Are they coachable? Are they clear on what success looks like to them as an individual? And do they have clarity on how they can make us better. We're a growth organization, so we don't want to just make them better. We want to have a clarity from them on how they can make us better. Of course, we use DISC. We use other personality profiles to, to ensure that we get the right person. The final thing that I'd say, and there is a lot to say, is we hire temporarily. And now that sounds really weird because the cost of hiring, the difficulty of finding the right person is really it just slows everything down. It really affects productivity. However, what affects productivity worse longer is hiring the wrong person and trying to make it the right person after mm -hmm. some time. So it's more costly to discover that you hired the wrong person because somehow you missed it and you try to make it work. So we hire temporarily. What that means is, is in 90 days, you, the new teammate, and we, the hiring person, is going to come right back and we're going to ask all the interview questions again and see how well we did. And I can't tell you how many times we've looked at the 90 days and went, sorry, made a mistake. In fact, I just yesterday hired a very critical, one of our top leaders will report directly to me, big hire, and I just looked at her and I said, hey, this is a 90-day engagement. I think we can get through anything in 90 days, and then we'll look at each other again. So I hope that helps.
Yeah. yeah and, it, and it's very helpful. It's actually kind of a perfect segue in the sense that, you know, when, when a company starts, the entrepreneur typically plays a very pivotal role in the company culture, you know, as well as client relationships. But as that business grows, you know, it eventually seems like it becomes impossible for the leader to be intimately involved with every team member and every client to the degree that, you know, that makes it feasible. How can you make the company culture and client relationships the best possible at scale so that everyone feels valued and, and appreciated? Well, I think that's a challenge for anybody. And, and, and obviously, the ability to develop and train other people to carry the load is essential. I, I always say that what I try to do is add value to leaders who multiply value to others. And, and so what we're always trying to do is we're trying to raise up leaders. How big can your company come when you're starting to talk about scale? They can grow to the number of good leaders you have. And uh, if you have three good leaders today, there's so much three good leaders can do with the people. And you say, well, I would like to get bigger. Well, then you need to go get leader number four. You need to get leader number five. And, and sometimes you can bring them in and they're already a leader. Sometimes they come up from within and, and, and you develop them as leaders. But here's what I know. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So whenever you're trying to grow your company, you have to, first of all, have a, a leadership culture. You have to people, and then you have to have a, a real equipping, empowering arm in your organization where, where you equip them on what they need to do, but then you empower them to go out and do that. And, and what I have found is that if I'm a controlling leader and I have to know everything and I have to make all the decisions, I become a, a major limitation to the growth of my organization. My growth, my organization can only grow to the level of my own skills and my own time and my own influence. And so the only way that you can grow a company is to grow leaders. And so I, I think developing a leadership culture in your company, having a, uh, intentional programming and planning in your organization and training that allows them to develop more leaders and then letting them run with the ball, let him run with the ball. And, and, and I know the answer, you know, I had, in fact, I had a person one time come to me and say, you know what, I get so tired of training people. I, you know, I get them on the team and I train them and equip it and I get them just really ready to roll and they get good. And he said, and then they leave, they leave. I, you know, I just, I spent all this money, you know, a year and a half of time. And, and they looked at me and said, is there anything worse than training somebody and working hard and then having them leave your company. I said, well, yeah, I can think of something. And I said, well, what would that be? I said, not training them and having them stay. That's, that's a lot worse. And so I think that when we develop a leadership culture of, of empowerment and equipping, and we begin to let other people take it in territory and uh, let them get some experience under the belt and, and let them get some wins and losses. And, and I think the mistake is we, we say again, well, they can't do it as well as I can do it. Well, that isn't the issue. The issue is the fact if you keep doing it, you're going to limit yourself. So in power, and, and will they make mistakes? Of course. Will they fail? Of course. But I can't, let me just stop for a moment and say to you, I think this is another loss. I think that we have not done well for ourselves when we try to separate failure from success. And it's kind of like success is over here and, and we want to be successful, but boy, you don't want to, you don't go there. You don't, you don't want to fail. So we really talk about success and we don't talk about failure and, and we just kind of separate them. And that's not realistic. Failure and success should never be separated. They should always be together. And so when I work with people and equipping and empowering people, I share with them, I say, now let me explain something to you. You're going to have some mess ups here. You, you are. And it's going to be okay because the value of, of messing up is, is that you become aware and you learn and you, and you change. And so it's okay. It's okay. And so we're going to let you have a few misses because we want you to learn and grow. In fact, in our John Maxwell team, we developed what we call a cycle of success. This may be really helpful to the attorneys. May, hopefully this will help you. It's a circle. It's a circle of success, really. It's a cycle. It keeps going around. And there are five components of it. And the five components are, are we, we test, fail, learn, improve, and then reenter. And then we do it again. We test. I mean, it, this is a cycle. This isn't a journey. If it's a journey, I may pass and never come back again. No, no. We constantly come back to these five things. But I want you to think of it as a, as a cycle that grows. So test, fail, learn, improve, reenter. Test, fail, learn, improve, reenter. Now, here, here's what I want you to catch. 
when you test a lot, you fail a lot. Well, what's the value of failure? Why, why do you not separate success and failure? Because failure has much to teach us. The value of failure is what you learn from it. So when people say, oh, this was a bad time of my life, COVID, COVID-19, oh my gosh, it was a terrible time of my life. Okay, I got it. We, we didn't like that. What did you learn from it? How did you get better from it? So it's test, fail, learn, and improve. The value of failure is to learn, and the value of learning is to improve, and the value of improving is that you get to re-enter back in the organization at a higher level than you've ever been, and so the cycle continues. And I think that is really essential in empowerment, in scaling, understanding how it works, and being comfortable with the fact that you're going to have some misses, but that's how you learn, and that's how you that's how you grow, and that's that's how you get better, really. Love it, and John, I'd love to speak briefly a, a, a bit about the future to kind of get your your thoughts, maybe your predictions. I imagine many of our listeners may be leading teams that have shifted to either a completely remote or hybrid model of work post COVID. Um, what would you say to leaders that want to keep engagement and accountability high without being in the office on a consistent basis? I think that we're in a, we're obviously I don't think I know we're at a time of great transition and change. In fact, I wrote a book really about two and a half years ago called Leader Shift. And it's all about being agile and, and, and moving quickly. And that book has become huge. Leadership has become huge in COVID. I didn't write it during COVID. In fact, didn't know COVID was coming, but it just ha- it's, it's a timing issue. And it's all about being able to pivot, make U-turns, be, be agile, that entire process and one of the things that, that I, I talk about, when, because people are always asking, Michael, well, when's COVID going to be over? Well, I mean, who knows? I mean, you don't Google when's COVID going to get over and have somebody give you a definitive answer. Steve Jobs said, Steve Jobs said, we don't connect the dots going forward. We only can connect the dots looking backward. And so when I look into the future, here's one of the first things I taught people is, you don't know far out all the changes that are going to happen, but be sure you do today real well. Today matters. And so if every day we're either preparing or repairing. I'm either preparing because I did yesterday well, and so I'm setting up tomorrow very well, or I'm repairing because I didn't do it well at all. So what I tell people is, I, I don't know how long we're going to have COVID. I don't know how long we're going to be virtual, as virtual as we are now. There are things that have definitely changed. We will never go back to the degree that we were without virtue. I mean, we we now see the value of virtue and it's gonna help a lot of us. And we're realizing we don't have to send people on planes every time we can have, we can have, you know, virtual meetings. And so it's never gonna go back to the same, nor should it go back the same. And then honestly, if we do it right, we're gonna get better because we don't go back the same. We've kind of gotten kicked out of our comfort zone. And I think that's a very healthy thing. But when people look at the future, I think that People are going to be much more flexible and adaptable. And I think that there, there's going to be people that will be able to work at home. There'll be people that won't. I, I don't think it's going to be either or. I think it's going to be both then. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. The best way to set up tomorrow for success is to do today really well. And I say, don't reach out too far in the future trying to figure it out and, and miss the opportunities of, of right now, because when opportunity comes, it's too late to prepare. I wrote a book entitled Make Today Count, and the whole thesis of that was the fact that if we take care of today really well, honestly, tomorrow kind of takes care of itself. And so I, my advice is, is, is very simple. We'll continually be in a virtual world, although I think there'll be many people that'll come back because some have to, but we're social creatures. I mean, how much isolation are you going to have before you before you come back? But if I'm doing the right thing today and my values are good, there's a pretty good shot that when tomorrow comes, I'm going to know what to do then too. So have your behavior match your clarity and don't try to go that far out. I, I don't think that works. And John, as we come to a close... I know you've said before that growth is the only guarantee that tomorrow is going to get better. And we use this term game changer, right? So we have a book by that name, a podcast, a conference. And I always like to ask everyone, what does being a game changer mean to you? Well, being a game changer means three things. First of all, it means getting in the game. 
<laughs> I tell people all the time, you can't, you can't be a game changer sitting on the sidelines. You know, it always cracks me up. The guy that's got a beer and a hot dog is yelling at the referee out on the field on, or telling the player to, to run a little harder, cut a little bit bigger. And I said, why don't you just set the beer and the hot dog down and get out there and see what you can do? I mean, get in the arena action. So game changer, first of all, means to, to be in the game. The second thing it means is to be a great teammate. Games aren't alone. It, the, the law of Mount Everest in my book on the twenty or the seventeen laws of teamwork. The law of Mount Everest says as the challenge escalates, the need for teamwork elevates, and, and during difficult time, it, it, the need for teamwork is even greater. So, if you're a game changer, you really make people around you better. So the people on the team love you being on the out on the field with them because you're making them better. So, a game changer means I I, I, I go from passive to active. But now I go from active to intentional. I'm in the game. And the third thing it means is the fact that the game is bigger than me. It doesn't center around me. It, it, I, I came into this world, the game was already on. I'm going to leave the world. The game continues. It doesn't stop. I don't think that there's a finish line. I live my life not saying there's a finish. If, in fact, if you put a finish line in your life, you put a self-imposed finish line, Michael, when you cross the finish line, you're finished. I mean, hello, what's, what's wrong with that picture? And who wants, to, who wants to be finished before they really could be finished? So I don't think there's a finish line. And I, I came into the game when it was already on. I leave the game, it's still going to be on, which means it's not about me. It's about others. And what I want to do is play the game so well that when I am no longer in the game, the game is played better and stronger by other people. And, and that's all about legacy. What I tell people all the time is that you want to have legs for your legacy and, and that's people. And so that's what a game changer means to me. You're really, you're making a difference over those three factors. Wonderful. That's like the, the mic drop. John, you must, uh, you must do this often. Very well spoken. Well, I done it one other time in, in 1987. <laughs> I do this every day of my life, my friend. This is who I am. This is what I do. And that's why I love what I do. I try to add value to people. So if I helped you, Michael, obviously, if I helped the attorneys, my gosh, thank you for your work and what you do. And I respect and value you so much. So if I helped everybody today, then I'm a happy guy. I want to give a huge thank you to John Maxwell for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when John said that everything rises and falls with leadership and to lead is to motivate. The most effective way to grow a company is to grow leaders by developing a culture that empowers team members to problem solve on their own. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with John Maxwell, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with five-time CrossFit Games champion and the fittest man on earth, Matt Frazier. Going out there, in my head, there, there was no option. It was like, no, I'm winning this event. It doesn't matter how much better you are than me at this. The amount of passion that I have behind this, there's no skill level that can trump it. I am willing to go to lengths and depths that I know that you are not willing to touch. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 oh,